1: We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey.
0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, we're chatting with Matthew Gentile. Matthew's debut feature, American Murderer, is a crime drama based on the true story of fugitive at large, Jason Derrick Brown, and it comes out in theaters this Friday. Woo!
2: The movie stars Emmy-nominated Ozark actor Tom Pelfrey, who stars alongside Adina Menzel and Ryan Philippe. Matthew's feature represents the rare independently produced first feature to star A-list actors. So we're really excited to talk about how Matthew helped get the project up on its feet and how emerging writer-directors listening may do the same.
0: But first, Matthew has agreed to join us in our Adventures in Screenwriting uh, section. So Jeff, you start. let help Matthew uh, see how it's done. How was your week?
2: You know, it was great. Um, I will say, just to be transparent, because we're always transparent on the show, Matthew, I'm thrilled to have you here. Um, funny story about how I met Matthew. And this is, you know what, I'm going to use my adventures in screenwriting to talk about the importance of taking meetings, if that's okay, because I think that's something all writer directors should be thinking about. And truthfully, I haven't been writing much this week. So I'm just going to tell a story that I think is relevant for our audience connected to our guest. Um, but, it's funny, you know, I've been hosting the show with Megan Lorian um, for a couple of years now. And every once in a while, I'll get DMs of people reaching out. And um, I got one for Matthew, which was really exciting. And, you know, it's funny. I read the DM and I was like, oh, this is nice. Like a fan of the show wants to meet. And then I looked up his website and I was like, oh, um, Emmy winning uh, student short. Oh, uh, movie signed with Universal Pictures and distribution. Medina um, Menzel and Ryan Philippe. Oh, I'm definitely taking this meeting. Um, but, you know, the truth is those meetings are always valuable regardless of someone's credits, because if you can meet like-minded people who have similar interests, that's always going to be beneficial for you. So it's just been really fun to get to know you, Matthew. And it's great to have you on the show today. And I want to emphasize that you're not just on the show because you're a friend, uh, but we're thrilled to have you, of course, regardless. Um, But it is helpful to expand your network and it's just been fun. You know, serendipitously, we both wound up in the Boston film festival together, which was a really small program. And that kind of happened unrelated to our friendship, which is, was a really fun kind of addition to both of our festival tour. But it's just a reminder to everyone that it can feel like such a one person's game um, as a writer. And it can be really easy to feel tempted to get trapped in your own silo and not connect with people. Um, but I think Matthew in particular does a great job of knowing he's a writer and getting those morning pages done, but reaching out and connecting with people. And so I'm really glad you set that meeting. But it's just a reminder to our audience, I set the New Year's resolution this year to set one coffee meeting a week um, with someone who works in the industry. I haven't been perfect, but I've been pretty good. And those have been really beneficial for me. And truthfully, it's just a way to keep, if you're feeling stuck on the page, it's a way to do something else that feels productive and kind of um, open your mind up a little bit if you're feeling stuck in your own work. So um, I'm glad you set that meeting, Matthew. And uh, it's good to have you here today.
3: I'm glad we did too. Thank you for meeting me. <laughs> um, speaking of I'm responding,
2: I'd love to ask how
3: your week was. Uh, my week's been good. It's uh, th- first off, Jeff. Thank you so much for that introduction, and thank you, Meg, for for having me on. Um, you know, it was yeah. You know, I'm I'm so glad you responded because I do I do a lot of cold outreach. <laughs> um, I think you have to in this industry, but people don't always respond. Um, but when I heard you talking about your you know, the journey of making your first movie—I was struck by how honest you were about it. Like you know, and how you just were sharing your brushstrokes with people. And I think it's great. And I, you know, I see Meg do it on this show every week. You know, Meg, we do look up to you. You are the—you wrote inside, motherfucking out. I mean, come on. You know, like it's an honor just to be in your company on a podcast with you. I mean, my God. Um, you know, so. It, it, we we look up, you know, what you do, Meg, by showing your brushstrokes people every week on this podcast with Laurie and too, you know, and you guys have worked at the top of the top and, you know, Jeff and I are here starting out and, you know, to see you doing that inspired me, you know, I, cause I want to do that as well. I think there's a tendency and certainly in Hollywood and Los Angeles to kind of like, let's show how perfect we are with everybody all the time. And that's part of the game. You've got to sell a movie too. So I understand that. And I'm, as I'm in this promotion mode, I, I, I understand what that means, but I love, you know, your honesty and your openness about your process. And I try to do the same uh, myself. So I'm glad we connected as well. Um, As far as my week goes, now the gushing's over onto my week. Um, My week has been great. I, uh, you know, the movie is coming out on Friday in theaters. Uh, It's coming out on streaming on the 28th. So I kind of am in the middle of a PR blitz for two releases, Um, you know, pretty much back to back uh, for the same movie, but it's two, it's two big releases. So it's been a lot of work, you know, a lot of good work, but, you know, I, I had my first press junket this week, which was pretty wild. Um, me and Ryan Philippa who is, you know, in the film, he's incredible, great guy and great to work with. Uh, we did our, like, we did 25 interviews in three hours filmed interviews. And I got to say, I was a little worried at first. I thought they'd maybe be su- very superficial or like, you know, cause that's what you hear about press junkets, I guess. It's like, they ask you all about like, you know, I thought maybe they would just ask Ryan about what's, it? you know, recent as kids, <laughs> but they, they actually really were really, it was nice to see them really connecting with the movie, um, and really getting it and really understanding it. And they, yeah. they, they were asking me more questions than I thought they were going to. Um, and I was kind of like the Dr. Ryan, he's the famous one. Um, but it was really great. And, you know, I've been doing a lot of, you know, just a lot of pod, it was interesting going from that doing like a five minute interview to something like this, like a podcast where you have an hour to really like get into. It. And I, I enjoy both, but I like this more because you get to really, you know, dive in deep. And it's been really cool to do that. Um, I've been committed to my morning pages. You know, I've, and we'll talk about it, but I, I've gone back and forth on writing routines. Like I switch them like every two, three months. I'm like, this is the kind of writer I am. I, I write this way now. And, but with all of the press, I have found that the only way for me to actually get pages down is by writing in the morning, because after 9am or 8.30am, my phone just starts blowing up and emails come in and some, or just something takes, you know, takes a bite out of my day. So for me, that six o'clock AM to 8am range is the only time I really have where I won't get in my head before I start talking myself out of actually writing. Um, so I'm, I'm having fun. I'm in the first draft, vomit draft phase of a new script that's been kind of in my head for a while that I finally just like, I don't know on September 28th. I was like, all right, we're just gonna do it. And uh I'm I'm about two thirds in. So I'm I'm getting to that point. I, I feel myself wanting to stop, but I'm like, nope, we're gonna push through and get to the end. I'll probably be done by the end of the month with the with the draft. Um, you know, and then of course starts the journey. But yeah, so it's it's cool. I'm writing something new. Um I'm at the very beginning of another project in terms of my second feature which is you know we're trying to shoot next year and I'm at the very end of American Murder, you know with the last step which is helping it get onto the world so it's been a it's a great it's a great week you know it's,
0: so you're uh, shooting another movie right now
3: I'm not shooting no 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 I'm, I'm in the very early prep stages of, a, of my second feature so I've written the script it's you know we're going to start to develop it and it's going to have a long journey I'm sure but we're aiming to shoot fall of twenty twenty three. Um, That's exciting. It's a script I've been cooking for a while, but I, I'm about eight drafts in. So to go with, I understand. I think I need to get to ten. I'm kidding. Ten.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: American Murder was minimum.
2: Like 10. It was minimum. forty.
3: Right. I need to get to ten. No, no. <laughs> well, you know the, there's the Billy Ray. Uh, Milosh Foreman had a story of um, the writer Peter Schaefer did forty seven drafts of Amadeus before, like, and he was Peter wow. Schaefer.
0: Right. He's Peter Schaefer. I <laughs> mean,
3: no offense P- to either of us, but he's Peter Schaefer. <laughs> maybe you, but yeah, <laughs> but, uh, you know, Peter Schaefer. Yeah, exactly. Like he, and he won the Tony and the Pulitzer and Milo Forman made him turn in 47 drafts. And Billy Ray, when he told that story to us at AFI said, I promise you, none of us are Peter Schaefer. <laughs> so if he does 47 drafts do 400. Um, but yeah, so yeah, how is was, uh, how
0: was your week, Meg? Oh, well, thank you. I love hearing about your week. My week, uh, I also have a movie coming out soon. It's not this weekend, um, but uh, um, I have an animated movie that I optioned the book years ago uh, with oh, my wow. friend John, and we brought on Cartoon Saloon and Nora, and it comes out on Netflix. It's an animated kids movie. So we're also in the whole press push at the moment oh, in cool. terms of screenings and and. Q and A's and getting it out in the world. So that starts this week. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. If just to hang out with Nora and people, like you said, it's kind of fun. I mean, sometimes it's, it's a little intimidating sometimes Q and A's because like, is somebody going to stand up and ask a crazy question, but um
3: yeah. I, I had, so I sure. had, I had one on Saturday. Um, at New, we, we did the West coast premier American murder at the Newport beach film festival. And I did have some funny questions. Like someone, Yeah. Yeah. But uh, you, every
0: once in a while you get one that you're like, Oh, that's not actually a question. Right. <laughs> that's actually a comment. <laughs> but, um, so I'm, I'm getting geared for that, but mostly, you know, I did a huge, huge push, um, for the project I'm on, and it was just, it's been such a huge push working weekends. And then it's kind of calmed down. I'm still doing small things, but it's really more small bubbly things as this moves into boarding and edit. And I, in my head, I know I should be resting because I just, it would be like, I just ran two marathons back to back. My body's tired. My, my writer. Muse is tired. The muse is tired people. She is tired. It's like, my head is like scraping out a melon at this point. And yet I still have this pressure of, well, what about your passion project? Now's the time. Like, when do you ever get this kind of huge, uh, you know, chunks of time, like you said, like t- these chunks of time that you're not getting up at five in the morning to do. So I am noodling around with the passion project, but and I, I, for a minute, I was panicked that, Oh my God, it's not a passion anymore. Like it's not, it's not bubbling. I don't feel anything. And I'm like, no, no, I'm just tired. (laughs) I'm actually just tired. And it's kind of like, I ran two marathons and now I'm looking at Mount Kilimanjaro that I'm supposed to hike. And my body is just like, and my brain and my writing muses are like, yeah, no, let's just, let's just chill out here for a minute. And so I'm trying to trust that I'm trying to, uh, Trust that it's okay to just noodle on things uh, when you're tired, and so that I can get my energy to go again. But I really enjoyed watching your film, so I want to talk about Thank that because nobody Thank needs to so talk much. about me and my tiredness. Um, I want to okay. hear about your tiredness. <laughs> um, so I just I have so we have so many questions. Okay. Um, But the first one, let's just we always start kind of with the same place because so many people are interested in where people came from. And um, so you started um, out and started in quotes here because, of course, before AFI, I'm sure you were doing lots of things. But let's let's start the story. Let's start the narrative with you at AFI. And can you talk a little bit about that experience and, you know, what you think film school kind of did for you or gave to you or what you learned there or, or how it kind of helped you and where you are now?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I was one of these people that wanted to be a filmmaker since I was 12. Um, You know, I my father showed me Dog Day Afternoon and uh, it was, you know, at age 12. So I was too young to see it, but I fell in love and I loved the movie so much that I came up to him after that. And I said, I need more movies like this, you know, and that led to Cool Hand Luke and which I loved hearing what you said about that last week um, or a couple weeks back and all these kinds of movies about anti-heroes that really identified with me and, 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 and struck the board um, in my system. And my introduction to screenwriting came when I was 12 after seeing Dog of the Afternoon. Um, they used to sell, I grew up in New York City and my mom would often take me to the theater because I always wanted to see shows. And there was these street stands um, where they would sell screenplays that they printed off like, you know, Scriptorama.com, And they were basically bootleg. Like it would have like a picture of the movie on it. And... My mom saw me eyeing a copy of Dog Day Afternoons, like selling for 10 bucks. So my mom bought me that as a, as a Hanukkah present. Um, and that was the first time I ever read a script. And I realized, oh, this is what a screenwriter does. How, how incredible is that? And um, you know, so I was pretty into making movies, all that. I went to a liberal arts school, you know, did film and English double major after I graduated. I, while well, in college, I did it one semester at a film school in Prague called FAMU. Um, that a lot of people who have like gone to film schools usually do their semester abroad there because they have a great film school. And that was my first taste of the film conservatory. And after that experience, I was like, oh, I need to be at one of those. Like the liberal arts stuff was great. I majored in English. I broadened my mind a little and did some stupid things. (laughs) And I said, okay, I'm ready to, you know, to get that film school conservatory experience. Um, And I looked at a bunch and the only one that really reminded me of what I had at FAMU was AFI. You know, and, and people have said that before, that it kind of feels, AFI feels like a European conservatory. Now, I applied the first time, and uh, actually, someone we know, a mutual friend of ours back, Robert Taylor, um, who has sung your praises a lot and knows you through young storytellers and ride back, I think, um, and he says hi. Um, Robert Taylor was my admissions processor. And i I called in for an interview and the first and I got really close to it, but I ended up getting rejected. And I was twenty two at the time. the average AFI fell at that time was like twenty nine thirty, You know, so closer to my age now, which is kind of crazy to think. It's now skewed the other way, but it just was interesting. So I you know, I, I came really close, but I saw I went to the school, I saw it, I had met the teachers. I saw the class, and I was like, I have to go to this place. Like it's not, you know, whatever it takes, I will, I will do it. an AFI. You only get three chances. So, you, you know, you get three chances or see three rejections, you're done. You're not getting back in. So, and I would have kept going if I didn't. But, um, so I, after college, I took a year and I worked at William Morris Endeavor um, in the mailroom. And I uh, actually did that for six months and I became a talent assistant for another uh, eight months. So I was there for a while. Um, and that was a really imperative time for me uh, because I I really got to, I worked for a top talent agent. She's a top talent agent now. At the time she was new and starting out, but um, she had signed Timothy Chalamet and Julia Garner when I was on that desk. So I was watching. Not bad. And, <laughs> yeah, right. It was pretty And Timothy Chalamet was a high schooler out of LaGuardia. It was you know crazy to see. He was this charismatic kid who came in. <laughs> it was very nice. to Everyone he was like, "Hey, it's Timmy," you know. And lo and behold, you know, you see him become this huge star. It's crazy. Um, but it was really a I and. Mean, Really exciting place to be at age uh, 22 23 because you you I was really watching deals get made. I watched my boss' hustle and how she just could get people in the room and like be that you know person's advocate and I was like, this is what you need to really get your career going. Um, it was really cool to see. Um, and so I after that I made a film on a week's paycheck and that got me into the American Film Institute thankfully. Um, it was, the week's paycheck, by the way, back then was six hundred dollars. <laughs> I made sure just you know did the best I could, and it was good enough to get me into AFI the second uh, time around. Um, and you know, AFI was an incredible place. I mean, I, I was so excited to be there. It was it was ultimately prompted my move from the East Coast to the West Coast. Um, you know, and I was in. I had such a it was such a talented class. I mean, just to give you some perspective, my class had Max Barber, who did Palm Springs, um. You know, Arkasha Stevenson, who has an incredible career in television, is doing the new Omen film. Um, our friend Daniel Sofka, you know, did a, a feature right out of school called Icebox with James L. Brooks. I mean, it was like it was a murderer's row. And I was definitely I would say probably the least out <laughs> there was, It was really like intimidating. These guys, these, guys, these cats were good. Um, and there were just numerous other great directors who I'm not even mentioning. But, you know, um, so many people and you know it was a competitive program you know the first day one of my favorite teachers uh Tuesday told us that the odds were two of us you know we're going to actually have careers directing you know and they were very honest with you and straightforward about that and I appreciated that because I you know I, I appreciate when film schools get real with you and tell you like look you know you're not going to graduate here or walk onto a set and you know direct a movie from Warner Brothers it's not really how it works right it, it takes time you have to be ready to you know grind it out and you know like, really, it's a battle of attrition. You know, you got to kind of, you get points for sticking around. And so for me, I went there, you know, I was very lucky in that two, I did, I got to do two thesis films. Uh, normally you do one, but I had the rare opportunity to do a second. And both thesis films, they were called Frontman and Longman. They really helped kind of get me out there as a director, um, you know, because I went to AFI for directing. And I think, Meg, you were there at a time close to when I was there. Oh, um, yeah.
0: You mean I was teaching there?
3: I think I was close to when you were there. Right. I'm bummed I wasn't there when you were there because I would have <laughs> audited your classes. Because so I always audited screenwriting classes. Um, I don't know if you know Karen Jansen, but I yeah. uh, I went to her class all the time, and she's one of my closest mentors. She mentored my thesis film, um, so she's a, she's a great friend. But um, but yes, yeah, so you know, I I went to a lot of screenwriting classes, but I was really you know I was trained as a director, and you know when I um and so yeah no the film school experience was incredible because I mean you know. During AFI, I met my the cinematographer, American Murderer, the editor, both editors, um, Chris and Matt, uh, Khalila Robinson, like they all came from AFI, um, you know, and I've worked with them, these guys for nearly a decade, you know, so it's kind of crazy to think that like it all kind of, we built this real rapport and network and, you know, at the time it felt pretty competitive, but since then I find that people have become maybe it's we're all getting older, you know, a little wiser somewhat. Um, And I think, you know, people have been really supportive of each other, I've been finding and really like it's a nice community and a safety net, you know, um, of people to kind of have, I mean, you know, you see people making movies and doing exciting things. And I don't know, it's been really cool. And it's not just my class too, it's the class above or the class above, there's a real nice camaraderie. And I think, you know, whether you go to film school or not, you know, kind of james cameron actually said this when he was interviewed at afi he was like someone's like you never went to film school and he was like yeah i didn't go i didn't have the money to go to film school but i went to my own film school and i was in that usc library 10 hours a day right making photocopies of the books you know so i think that whether you go to film school or not you can kind of find ways to build that community but i i loved afi and I, i i it definitely really helped my career a lot but i think any film school experience is you know what you put into it i don't think going to any film school is going to make your career like you're going to make your career just like no rep is going to make your career right it's you know it's totally what you put into it but i it was the perfect school for me it was a good casting choice i'll say um the schools on in my head
0: well you said you made those two shorts Lawman and frontman um which again y- you met all the people there and but even if you're not in film school at this point you can make you can make films right it's right. not like old lady me who you had to go to the cage and get out the giant camera for, you know, like you can, you have a phone, you can make, you can make your films. Right. um, You know, can you talk about those in terms of your first feature and building to that and how those experiences kind of um, filtered in or helped support American Murderer, the feature? For sure.
3: Well, you know, so I graduated officially in 2015, but the second short lawman. So From man was my thesis short. I graduated with that movie. Um, that movie did, opened a lot of doors for me. Jeff mentioned earlier how it won the student Emmy. And, you know, kind of like that, that gave me, I got my, I got a little water bottle tour off of that. And for five seconds, I thought I was hot shit. And then I learned five seconds later that nobody cares beyond a win, <laughs> you know, the hard way. Um, and so I got lucky though, in that AFI um, had someone the year below me drop out um, a director drop out because AFI, I know Meg knows this, is positioned in a unique way where you have teams of, you know, you, it's very one track. So you, you come in as a director, you're a director, you're a screenwriter, you're a production editor, you're a cinematographer, you're an editor. A lot of other film schools like USC or even NYU, you can kind of do multiple things. You can try different hats out, but AFI, you kind of got to come in knowing what it is you want. And they make you, they really, you really have to hyper-identify. Um, and this goes to say, because... You know, for a long time, and I still am grappling with this. I I kind of struggle, even though I'm on so I'm on a lot of screenwriting podcasts this week. I really, I did, I really struggled to call myself a screenwriter, because I was like, no, 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 I'm a director. I'm going to be like a hired gun, chameleon director. That's how I thought my career was kind of going to go. You know, I guess I looked at like, you know, a career like I'm not saying it would be as good as these people, but like Ang Lee or Ron Howard, who like come in and do tons of different kinds of films. I was like, that's, you know, that that's what a directing career looks like. You know, at the top.
0: Hey everyone! So the new version of Final Draft, Final Draft 13, is out, and you know the question's going around: Is it worth it? Is it worth it to buy or upgrade?
1: And our answer is yes. So I recently got notes on a pilot, and I want to see how it works in my rewrite to move a couple of scenes. And usually, what I do is you know cut and paste, uh, which works out sometimes, but mostly it means I lose text because I move so quickly. But the new version of Final Draft has this cool feature called Navigator 2.0 where you can actually just move scenes around right in your script so without losing something, I can see what's working, what I'm missing, or what needs to be rewritten, or, you know, if I have to lose the scene altogether. But it's really, really helpful, and what's most important to me about this is that I'm not losing anything. Woohoo! Yes. I am
0: laying out a new project, and I want to card it, and I can now do that inside of Final Draft, and it's now a super easy way. You can take those cards and then make them into an outline with a simple drag and drop. So it's just a great way to see the larger story that you're writing and get down the details, track characters. I just love it. And for our emerging writers, a great new feature is final draft lets you set writing goals like page count or timed writing sprints, which is super cool.
1: So uh, we think the new version is really worth uh, investing in. So you can head over to final slash products to get the new version with a discount code of screen FD for 25% off. You should check it out.
0: That's screen FD, S-C-R-E-E-N-F-D.
3: Um, and so I graduated though. I made these shorts. They opened a ton of doors for me in that lots of festivals, lots of meetings, lots of people saying like, oh, you've got some, you know, you've got some chops. Cool. What do you what do you have next? And I was really struggling to figure out what that first feature was, because for a director, that's everything. And I was seeing as I was graduating that people were kind of going different routes. Right. Like some directors were like, you know what? I'm a pretty good writer. I'm going to double down and I'm going to become like a studio screenwriter. Like that's where I'm going. And then some directors like kind of were like, I'm going to try the commercials music video thing and like use that way to climb. And what I slowly started to realize was that if I wanted to make a first feature that was my own voice and felt like something I wanted to say, I was going to have to write it myself because I wasn't going to be able to get somebody. I didn't have the resources or you know to have someone come and just write it for me. Um, and so I really had to, you know, sit with myself and think, like, what's that first movie? You know, what is it? And um, I tried, you know, writing a couple of different other scripts before American Murder came about. I had like, I was gonna do one where I was like, I'm just gonna you know, do this movie for like ten thousand dollars and just see what I can do, right? Kind of what like what Jeff did with uh Always Lola, which turned out great. Mine would have been awful. Uh, my, my, my idea for that, for that budget range was really bad. And I'm really glad I didn't make it. Also, they ended up making a version, a movie just like it that did very well. So I'm super glad. But I was kind of all in on that. Then there was a project, actually, that some agents had sent me. That was a, a script that was like a home invasion thriller that they wanted to make for like 250K. And it was written by these twin brothers. And the guys just didn't want to change a thing. Um, I don't know why it was important that they were twins, but anyways, um, <laughs> they, uh, they realized that uh, I realized that like the writers and I were not on the same page and I wasn't going to be able to make it work. So I decided to, you know, that I had to do it myself. And so it was like, what is that movie? And I just kept thinking. And then one day I was literally one of my, my hire, I was, I was doing a lot of separate gigs uh branded content commercial stuff stuff that was kind of weird like this one was I think a commercial for a dentistry thing in Texas or something and I was like you know they they paid me pretty well so okay so I'm in the hotel and I'm drawing out my storyboards and uh I always have something on the background when I'm drawing storyboards for my shoot and uh, all of a sudden Jason Derrick Brown's face popped on the television um, this fugitive con man that just popped on the TV and just struck me, and I was—I I, was on the show *American Great*, and I turned it up and I said, "What's going on? What, who is?" It? And I remembered—I knew who this guy was because before I wanted to be a filmmaker, I wanted to be an FBI agent, and I was obsessed with the FBI's top ten most wanted list. I used to go on and always peruse and spend, you know search. and so I remembered it from like childhood, and all of a sudden I just—I turned the volume up and I started watching, and I realized immediately, oh, this this is all the elements of a movie I would go see. Like, you know, an armored truck heist, a con man, a fed chasing him. Like, these are the kinds of movies I grew up loving. You know, from like Dog to the Afternoon to like, you know, all, all the crime films I, I grew up on. And so I said, this, this looks interesting to me. Why isn't this a movie? And at first I thought, you know, it could be a cool movie, but maybe it was too ambitious for a first time director. So I said, I'll just have a go, write it on spec, see what I can like make happen with it um and so i wrote the script you know i don't know the first versions are pretty fast i think the first draft are like three months or something which actually isn't best. but i wrote it and i thought okay you know it's the best script in the world i'm gonna go kick this around and (laughs) see what happens and you know i wasn't quite you know shocker getting the responses i wanted and realized i had to hunker down and do more work to get it to the place where it needed to be but i knew i had a story i wanted to tell that i was really passionate about and what kind of got me in was that you know here was this con man who was you know, so, it meant so many different things to so many different people. Um, and that just really struck me as an interesting story and character. And so I was really, you know, trying to figure out what the movie was. Um, what ended up, you know, in terms of these shorts, getting it really off the ground was I started to kind of pitch the script around. I had a loose attachment with this actor named Jonathan Groff who was in my proof of concept short that I ended up doing uh, for this movie. And the reason I did that was I was getting some meetings, you know, off his attachment and he was, you know, heating up from the show mind hunter david venture was coming out so I you mean know, he was in hamilton he was kind of buzzing about and so i got you know people were interested in the project because of that loosely and i went into pitch it a few places but i realized people just weren't reading my script <laughs> they just weren't taking the time to crack it open and so i had a meeting at this company and these three guys are like looking at me and they're like hearing me talk and i'm pitching the whole thing i have this awesome pitch deck that i spent like four weeks on doing, <laughs> you know, i'm showing them everything and you know i'm thinking the meeting's going great and then we I leave and the guy comes up to me and he, uh, he walks up to me in the hall and he goes, excuse me. Uh, hey man, look, I'm just letting you know, I really like you, but um, I don't think those guys are going to make a movie and I'm going to read your script. I'm like, really? <laughs> no. Okay. Well, I, why did I come here? And he's like, well, you know, I think if you want to get people to read your script, you got to do a perfect concept, like just shoot a scene for the movie. And I was a little arrogant at the time. I was like, well, you know, my shorts won all these awards. Like, why do I need to do another short? Like, I feel like I've, you know, I did two that did really well. Like, why do I need a third? And he was like, well, your shorts show you can direct, but they don't show you can direct this. So go shoot a scene and show them the tone, the vibe, get some good music on it, like really show them what it feels like and that'll compel them to read it. And they said, or don't. <laughs> and then the guy was gone. And I was, I'm, thank God that guy said that because I, uh, after that, I left that building and I was like, okay, I'm going to go do a proof of concept. I did it with Jonathan. We shot a scene from the movie. And that, and all while this was going on, I was doing more and more drafts of the script, right? And just, you know, refining it, making it better, whatnot. And it was that short and that, you know, rough script that at the same time attracted, now because the show came out, Mind came out, a lot of people then were asking me about it, like, hey, can I read this? Hey, can I read American Murder?
0: Do you and, mind which scene, and, and if it gives anything away in terms of the, the, no, the okay. fun of the audience going to see the movie this weekend, don't tell me. But which scene did you choose as the proof of concept is my uh, first question. And my second question is, how did you get him attached as talent?
3: Uh, great questions, both. Um, the scene we chose was, uh, we chose something really easy. We did the SWAT invasion. <laughs> so, and in the proof of concept, we did it all in one shot. Um, you know it's a tough movie to do spoilers with because you know at the beginning every like even the article with the trailer will tell you he's a fugitive and he's still missing so you know okay. um, I think we're okay, okay um, all right. but yes there's a SWAT invasion at some point folks um, so come see it but yeah there was a uh, there was we did the we did the SWAT invasion um, and so the way I got Groff attached was so when I worked at William Morris in the mailroom one of the best jobs we used to have that all the other and they called us floaters, floating assistant, is what I meant. But you know, all the floaters were terrified of taping auditions because if it went wrong, you know, you <laughs> would be in really big trouble. Like if you dropped their tape or whatever, you messed up the camera. So people really didn't want to tape. I love taping though, because I'm like, well, I want to be a director and this is the coolest thing. And I taped so many actors' auditions while I worked in there. I think I taped a total of like 50. I kept track and like I wrote them down. Um, it was something like 50 and Jonathan was one of the ones that came in the most to audition and so you know I got to really as a taper watch the actors even like sometimes they would ask me for input and it was really my that was my directing class you know directing actors
0: that class. is so cool and then uh yeah
3: no it was, it was a really great opportunity and years later uh after I won the tsunami I met an agent who knew Jonathan and I told him kind of that story I was like oh Jonathan was the best he was the nicest he was the best actor he's such a talented guy and you know, the only reason he's not in the movie is because he blew up so big. We could, you know, schedule. <laughs> and my film took so long to get made, but he was, you know, yeah, I mean, he was such a, a gem and, and such a great person to work with. And he really helped me get the movie off the ground because him being a, attack. So basically what happened was I met up with him. I came in, I pitched him the movie. <laughs> he I came in pretty strong as I tend to. And he was like, okay like you know it <laughs> sounds cool um but you know everyone will tell you that pitching an actor sometimes telling them like ah, you know i'm writing something for you. you can go you can kind of go one or two ways and he was like all right that sounds cool send me the script when it's ready but take your time you know don't like take your time really uh, and i'll read it whenever um i'm not going to forget in three months like which is very nice of him to say and then i finally i think i sent him six months after that meeting so i've edited it pretty carefully and that got him really excited about it and he was like yeah i want to do this and i don't think his agents ever really wanted me at the
0: time, but uh, I mean, I, 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 there's this insight in terms of, you know, Dog Day Afternoon being one of your favorite films and the first film you saw that made you want to do this, but I still want to ask the question, you know, of all the con men stories out there, of all the true crime stories out there, you know, why this one? What, what, what is it that it's about for you that kind of drew you to it and, and was the passion project?
3: Yeah, you know, at first it started as yeah, it's like superficially this makes sense as a fifth for me, right? It's interesting because it's a comedy. it's interesting because it's a robbery. But what ultimately really got me in as I started to research, because I spent a good six months just researching this story before I even wrote a single page, just taking notes, interviewing some people um who became composites in the film somewhat. I don't want to say who they are because I don't want to out them. But as I as I really researched the story, and you know, there's so much about Jason Derrick Brown in the public domain, like you know, from interviews covered on Dateline, American Greeds, there's a lot out there. I really started to see it as a story about family. That was really the emotional core, the lava, so to speak, was that this was a film about family. And, you know, it had all these other things to it, right? Dark side of the American dream, you know. Uh, and, and I would say also a character who meant so many different things to so many different people, right? Like that also really fascinated me that this guy could be, you know, to an FBI agent like Lance Lysing, a, a played by Ryan Phillippe, a, a murderer, right? <laughs> He's trying to bring the justice, spoiler. Or, you know, to his sister, he's this little boy or little kid brother who changes into this, this dark soul, right? And then his mother can just see right through him. And that's the con man's worst nightmare, right? So I thought this paradox was really interesting that you had this guy who did something so heinous and evil and calculating. and like, you know, it's not someone I particularly identify, right? He's very like much doing 17 different things at once. And, you know, I would probably, if I saw Jason... You yeah, I've seen guys like Jason in college, right? I <laughs> think we all are, you know, at a club in West Hollywood, right? They're like, you know, there's that kind of personality that I don't personally necessarily identify with, but I find interesting or I find funny, right? Or, you know, but I think it was, it, at the core, it's a film about family, um, an exploration of dark side American dream, all that, but family was really the way in for me. And what Jason meant to all these different people, early drafts in the script kind of stayed just with Jason like they didn't really uh, go outside his point of view. And when the script got picked up by these two companies, uh, Traveling Picture Show and GG Films, they kind of converged on me at the same time. And we can get into that, the, that began a long development process. Um, you know, what I realized made the story actually a film worth making, right? And not just like, you know, another crime popular um, was that you got to really see this character of Jason Derrick Brown from all of these different perspectives. So it's like you're looking at through all these different lenses and angles. That by the end of the movie, whether you love him or hate him, or anywhere in between, you come away with a 360 degree view of who he was and what he meant. And that, really, I think, if without that, I don't think it's a
2: film worth making. Personally, right?
3: I, you know, I no, that's I great. I seen that before, but yeah,
1: that's
2: great. And I'm sure Matthew that, that that type of discourse, like the way you're approaching the movie, the way you're pitching it to us, is I'm sure the way you had to pitch it when you were going out because, you know, I, I guess what I would love for you to talk about is, you know, for our emerging writers who might be taking meetings or just writing themselves or pitching actors themselves, you, you have to have that specific way in. You have to have an emotional yeah. way in because they're, you know, they're getting pitched a million crime dramas. Like, why yours is the big question, right. you know?
3: yeah absolutely i think that's you know i had a one of my dearest friends call me last night and he said he had a meeting with the producer that he was like upset about because he pitched him the movie and the producer said like this sounds like cool but i don't get why you're excited about this and he was like feeling really discouraged and i said to him i was like buddy like that's every day, you know. <laughs> like people are going to ask you that and that's okay. Like, you know, but when I, you know, to be clear when I first pitched American, Red, I think part of why I got so many passes on it before these two companies came together, I didn't have that reason. You know, I could pitch it fairly well. I could pitch the, the story well, I could pitch the plot events pretty well. And I, and I you know, I, I had that mapped out. Like I knew how to pitch like the truck and the mystery and the, you know, all of that, the intellectual like thing but I didn't have the emotional undercurrent yet. And that took me time um you know I was lucky in that I met two companies traveling picture show and Gigi Kevin Mattisau, Chris Bell G Walsh they really converged on me at the same time and they saw potential of me from my short films and and the script you know because it was like I was getting a lot of when I sent the script I was like oh it's pretty well written but I think we I'm pretty sure you guys have talked about this when someone says it's well written that's usually not great <laughs> like it's not bad but it's not great because it means like they're like yeah you know it's like it's kind of like when someone says like oh your movie looks good you know it's like okay so it didn't like emotionally get you right because you know it's about emotion you want people saying i was you know i enjoyed it i was on the edge of my seat i was scared i was crying what you know whatever it is i was laughing right it made me feel something and like i have heard you talk jeff about how you're always on the screen it's like people come up to you and say i felt this right and that's that's how you know you hit the target right um, and So American Murder early drafts, when people were like into it, I was really like, interested or peaked, but it was kind of like I wasn't hitting that emotional target. It really wasn't until I went through a lengthy script development where I did so many countless drafts of this thing that made me question, hey, Matthew, why are you doing this? Why are you telling this story that now when Meg asks me on this amazing podcast, you know, as the movie's coming out in three days, I can answer articulately. But I was not able to say that. Uh, really, I, I don't even know. because. I never really had to say it to the, I didn't have to pitch this thing to too many people. Like fortunately for me, Traveling Picture Show and *GG Films came, came on pretty early, but you know, but we went through that lengthy development. I think I turned in 11 drafts for them. And that doesn't count how many drafts I did. I did like six in between each, <laughs> you know, like it was so many drafts of the script and finding it through that. Cause for me, like when I sit down to write a script, I don't really necessarily know why I'm doing it. Um, I just have to kind of dive in and go and then through the rewrites, I figure it out, you know?
0: I'm the same. I'm the same. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know. This is just won't leave me alone. I just have to uh, start writing scenes yeah. and see what this is, or I think it's one thing, and then it turns out to be another, or yeah, absolutely.
3: absolutely. Yeah, it's why I don't really outline much anymore, and I'm not saying I recommend that, Uh I know some people, you know, are very good on outlines and need that. I do note cards and rough sketches, but I also have the benefit, though, of writing true crime. I gotta say, when you write true crime, you're the one thing you've got, I was talking with Ryan Felby about this. I was He was like, do you ever get writer's block? And I was like, I really don't, but only because all my characters exist. So, you know, even if I'm stuck, I'm going to be like, well, you know, I can write interior bank. He robs a bank. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, I could do something. It may not be the most compelling scene in the world, but I can do that, you know? So, yeah, but that's it. I understand writer's block is a real thing. And I know that I, you know, Billy Ray's my mentor and I, I'll drop his name every podcast I go on. And he outlines for three months before he sits down to write a page. So, you know, I think that everyone's different, right? But for me, I have to, yeah, I just have to dive in because otherwise I will talk myself out of writing it. And I think that's the, that's the battle I always face.
2: I agree. I mean, I, <laughs> I outline after a vomit draft because that's yeah. exactly right. Like if the clay is not there, it's just too hard to find the clay. You'll, I think you just said it so well, you talk yourself out of it. Yeah. Um, I I put myself in your shoes, Matthew, as a first-time director. And like you mentioned, our movie's very small. I knew most of the cast. And that felt like a really safe place for me to, like, find who I was as a feature director. But, like, you're on a set with A-list actors, a budget that's more than mine. And I I don't know, I would love to hear you talk about, like, were you battling imposter syndrome on that set? And how did you you find the confidence and the self-assurance to, like, helm such a big production for your first feature?
3: Oh, my God, every day, (laughs) every day, imposter syndrome, Um, you know, and I talked about this with, uh, Yeah, I think, you know, first off, to get this cast, as you pointed out, for this kind of movie um, is very rare. It's not something that happens a lot for a first time director. You know, it's just it's not, you know, so I realized how lucky I was to have that happen. Um, Now, you know, it, it came with a lot of heart. You want to say luck is when preparation meets something opportunity and you know we were you know we shot the film in november 2020 to early 2021 so when you factor that in you know this was a time when the world was in lockdown people weren't working you know even then that applies to the cast and our utah crew right everyone was kind of coming out um, of this time and we had the opportunity to go and make them you know and get paid to do it And for me, I I took that every day as a blessing, you know, and I knew also every day that we could get shut down, this thing would be over, you know, and, and, you know, your dreams crushed, right? So the stakes were always so high, but I had to convince, I, you know, I, I have to believe in like, you kind of manifest your own outcomes. And so I was like, I'm never gonna, you know, let myself think that it could possibly get shut down. Um, You know, I just won't let that happen. But every day was just crazy, you know, and it was just felt like such a gift to be there, you know? living in a hotel in, in Utah and like shooting my movie with these amazing actors and it just felt like such a gift. Um, you know, I decided with these actors that, you know, two things. One, you know, I would, I would kind of lean on them a little in that I wasn't going to come in and try to show them that I'm some, you know, great director who's been around for, you know, 30 years making great movies. Like I, I was going to say to them, like, you know, look, I want to, I, I decided to make them part of my film school. In that, like, you know, so when Ryan Phillippe came on set, you know, the first day, like, I told him, you know, like, this guy works with Robert Altman, Clint Eastwood, and Tony Scott, right? Three three of the reasons I became a filmmaker <laughs> right there. I moved to Los Angeles. So, you know, I asked him, what, what was Robert Altman like? What was Clint Eastwood like? What was Tony Scott like? You know, and I put myself more in that student position with them sometimes. Um, now, that doesn't always work because you do have to be their director as an actor. You have to, you know, you, you have to know what you want and all of that. but. You know, I kind of look to Ryan a little bit, and each of them is different. Because every actor has a, and as you know, this Jeff from and Meg from working with actors, like every actor has a different language. They, you know, they're not all. There's no one size fits all way to direct actors. They all need different things. You know, some actors like Tom is the actor who, you know, and he's incredible. Tom likes to just do it. He Doesn't like to overtalk it. He doesn't want you know my intellectual reasons for why Jason Derek Brown wore a green shirt that day. He doesn't care. <laughs> he just wants to, he's gonna put the green shirt on. He's gonna go. And, you know, Chantelle Van Santen, who is absolutely brilliant, as I think, as the sister, she wants to know exactly what shoes Jamie wore and, like, how she did it. And, and she wants to, like, you know, study everything, she anything, any research I have she wants. And so you find kind of each actor's language and they're all different. I was very lucky that all these actors were so open. And, you know, Adina Menzel was calling me boss on set, which kind of scared me, but you know, they were very like trusting of me. And, you know, the funny thing is with actors, is sometimes they really have no idea how insecure you are as a first time director, <laughs> you know? I was really like shocked at that I was like, oh, I was like, oh my God, they're gonna read my insecurity, but you know, they just, they don't know. They're just like, cool, they're happy to be there. They're working. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think that we were just so lucky to have this cast that I, the one thing I did do that I recommend um is I asked each of them because again all these people came from such great directors like Tom had just finished shooting with Fincher uh on Mank and you know Jackie Weaver's worked David L. Russell Peter Weir all these like giants right and she you know and everybody I mean I, I would ask them what do the best directors do like what's the in your experience and how do you how do you like to work and what are the, what are the best directors you've worked with do and they all said the same thing Which was that the best directors were prepared and had a vision, but were flexible. It was those three kind of. They all said that more or less the same way.
2: And so, in terms
0: of that, in terms of that, when you mentioned when you were doing the Texas commercial that you were storyboarding in the hotel room. So I'm interested in your preparedness for this film. Did you storyboard the whole thing? Did you just storyboard certain sections? Like how how much do you storyboard?
3: I storyboard a lot. Um, I. Well, what has so happened, yeah, we went shoot, we went to cast the movie in March of 2020, right? So that's when we make our first offers to actors. And, you know, anyone can tell you that's not the best time to start. What um, happened? So- <laughs> yeah. what, what went down? Yeah, so the world was in lockdown. We were all, you know, but what we did, me and my team, my cinematographer and uh, my editors, you know, were all kind of like eager and wanted, thinking we were, our time was gonna come to finally get this thing off the ground. I just pretended in my head, I was like, we're shooting this year. I don't care what happens, come hell or high water, we are filming this in 2020. I told myself that in January and I had this feeling and I was like, all right, we're gonna do it. And so what I did to quell my own anxiety was I storyboarded every single shot of the film, meaning like I, I drew it out terribly, I can't draw, but I drew like with color pencils and stick figures. And you know, I just went and I drew every shot of the movie, like. Myself just felt, you know, I, I had typed up a shot list, which I always do when I'm done with the script, I'll like write up all the shots. If I'm directing it, I'll write up all the shots. Um, and then my cinematographer Khalil and I look at it and we talk about it and then she adds shots and she adds ideas, we kind of co-author a shot list. And then I go out and draw it. So I can see how it cuts together in my head and the blocking looks and all of that and come up with new ideas and whatnot. Um, and we do overheads too, or like, you know, floor plan shot, you know, shot designs, um, Khalil and I together. And we would vet this shot list, much like how Pixar beta tests their narratives. You know, we would like go through it. Sometimes we'd read parts out loud and like spiel it out. And then I got really lucky in the pandemic because my editor, Matt Allen, who Jeff knows and has met, um, he won this Ace and Brennan Fellowship Award where he he got his hands on this uh, software called Shot Pro, um, which allows you to build sets in 3D and roam with cameras. And really like get in there and like you can really like so for sequences like say the armored truck robbery which takes place in a movie theater we were able to actually build the real movie theater in the 3d model and stage it out and place cameras and what i want to say about storyboarding is because i know you know Werner herzog's one of my favorite filmmakers and he calls it you know storyboards are an instrument for the cowards <laughs> or whatever it is that he says um and i love <laughs> it so I know, I agree. but I, you know i also was once uh, i had a I got to show a film of mine to Bennett Miller. Um, and he never, he was, I think, one of the best directors alive. And he never storyboards anything. He just places two cameras down and, and goes and, and explores and finds there. And Robert Altman was like that too. Robert Altman just shot. And you know, then you have the other side of the spectrum where Hitchcock storyboarded every single shot, right? And then, and didn't deviate from them. So every director is different. But for me, what I like about storyboards and pre-visualization is when you're doing stuff that's, you know, because this movie has some pretty complicated stuff in it. You know, we've got action, we've got armor truck heist, we've got SWAT invasion, we've got stunts, we've got tackling. You know, there are some scenes that are just two people talking where the storyboard is maybe less relevant. But in those scenes, you kind of <laughs> you have to have a plan to establish the geography and have the audience know where they are or else it's not really going to work. Um, so the pre-visualization we just did for like the action stuff, for Matt Allen, I called them set pieces. Um, and then the, that I had things storyboarded, but I would also say that when I got to set, I was very ready to throw them out. And so there are some things where like in the action-y stuff, they actually stayed pretty close. Like we actually have some, on the, spot, the Blu-ray that's coming out in January, we have some uh, side-by-sides of like how the previs and the place of like the murder sequence, and all that were, were pretty similar. But then when you look at like the, you know, scenes, like if I was taking the storyboards, the scenes would say him and Jackie Weaver, right? <laughs> like, you know, that kind of changed because the blocking changed. But I think it's always good to have a design of the scene in your head you know then you know, I don't necessarily show any of my storyboards to people. Um, I'll show just Khalila, my cinematographer, and she'll look at the awful drawings, laugh at me, and be like, Great, I know what to put you know, I know what I know what to do. Um, but I don't, uh, you know, I don't think staying rigid to storyboards is necessarily the way to go. Although, I mean, look, everyone's it worked for Hitchcock, so who knows, but I like to have it so that I have a strong plan so that I can then get to set and then throw it away and be spontaneous. And I think without that planning, at least on a budget, because the movie was made on a tight, budget. I can't say what the budget was, but it was tight <laughs> and the schedule was tight. We shot the whole thing in 22 days. Yeah, so, you know, tight. yeah, we didn't have a lot of time. And so when you're doing a movie like that, I think again, with action and, and stuff like that, you have to kind of, I think, have a pretty solid plan for how you're gonna do it, especially well, your first time director.
0: <laughs> that also speaks to another question I have. You said in passing uh, in one of your answers that you believe that you manifest your outcomes. So like, and I heard you say, you know, even though we were in lockdown, I was, I was acting as if we're going, is that what you talked? Is that kind of what you're talking about when you talk about manifesting your outcomes that you're behaving as if you're getting that outcome? Is that what you're talking about?
3: Exactly. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, it's that my girl, do you guys know about human design? All right. Have you heard about this? It's a new Mm -mm. thing. I think my girlfriend, who you just met is really into it.
2: I'm interested. Uh,
3: where there's different kinds of like personality types, and a manifestor is a type of personality that I happen to be. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll have her send you something about it. But anyways, <laughs> there's all these different human design types. Um, so you know, look, I think that a lot of directors, in particular, you kind of do have to. You because as a director, and this is for being a writer and a director is different. Like a writer. What I love about being a writer, <laughs> like you just, it's it's you and you, I mean, you have to work with producers and all that, but you know, when you get up in the morning to write those pages, like you don't have a hundred people waiting on you, right? being like, "Hey, what are we doing today?" Right? When unless you direct... you're
0: working at Pixar, but anyways, you know. that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's
3: true. Yeah, um, but you know, when when you write, you get to you know, you have that space, and uh, unless you're a Pixar, Um when you're directing, though, you have you know, you have to have that kind of thing going, and so for me. In terms of manifesting the outcome, now it doesn't always work out. And a lot of times, you know, I aim for the moon or shoot for the moon, and I don't get it. But I think that you know, kind of believing inside that this was always that this was going to be shot in 2020. I actually didn't. I thought it was going to get shot in 2021. But I told everybody around me, "It's happening in 2020. We're doing this," because I had to. I think to keep my team excited, right? my people who are like wanting to make this movie or song or my producers as well, right? Who are, because when you're a first time director or a first time screenwriter, and in this case, I'm, I'm both, they're taking a risk on me. You know, I mean, yes, I had some shorts that did well, sure. But it's still a, a huge risk. You know, they're asking people to, you know, they're raising financing, they're doing all this. They're putting, you know, the, these actors also are taking a huge risk you know, Tom Pelfrey, Ryan Phillippe, Adina Menzel, Jackie Weaver, like they could do a million other projects with more established filmmakers. So, you know, they're taking a risk by being in this movie. And so I think that, you know, even though yes, imposter syndrome is very real. And when the actors started getting more and more famous, and my family was calling me being like, this person's in your movie? (laughs) You you got Ryan Phillippe, what? (laughs) Like You know, when you get that, but you know, even though you have the imposter syndrome, I think it's also important, especially when you direct a movie that you have to believe that it's going to get done. You're going to make it because if you don't have that confidence in yourself, it's very hard to inspire it and out of other, to get it out of
0: other people. Yeah. I love that. I love that.
3: And
2: I will say quickly too, for our writers who are listening, who may think this is like very director specific, so much of what you're saying applies to writing too, because like writers have to pitch and like you know what, you may feel uncomf- you might not feel confident on the page, but when you step into a room, you have to believe that your script is the best script in the entire world. And that like, they should spend a lot of money to not only you know option the script, but commit tons of dollars and resources to getting it made. So I just wanna echo, if you're listening, thinking that like, this is all director talk, I think it has so much to do with writing too. Especially when you talk about being wildly prepared, creating a bulletproof document, but then being immediately open to notes and being flexible, you know, to me, the idea of storyboarding the movie to its life, right. But then knowing on the day, anything could change. That's the same as having your perfectly outlined script getting to that scene and feeling your heart open up because you realize something's wrong and need to follow the muses in a different direction. So I think it's really important what you're saying, Matthew. And for any of our writers who are listening, I think it's so relevant to the, to being on the page to, to be an well and
0: in and your script is going to go through this process with the director and with these actors and with the producers and with the the distributors and the guys making the poster and like that this is where right. it's going. You know, it's not gonna go sit on someone's shelf. It's gonna keep living and breathing and changing as it goes. So you it's so, so great to hear how a director thinks and what they need. So I think it's awesome for the show. And now I hate to say it, but I think it's we have to close out. I know that you are so busy and you're probably back to back. Um so we're going to ask you the same. I'll three- give this one
3: as much time as you need. But yes.
0: <laughs> oh, that's so nice. Green ring well, life
3: gets as much as you do. <laughs> I
0: have a plane going over. Can you hear it? Is it too loud?
3: You're
2: fine. I don't, I don't hear it.
0: Okay. Hear it. Um, so we always ask our guests the same three questions. And since you're a fan, I expect you to be prepared. <laughs>
3: <laughs> prepared but
0: flexible. Yes, <laughs> very prepared but flexible. Um, so what brings you the most joy when it comes to writing?
3: You know, I was thinking about this one um, and I think it's two things. I think that, you know, the moment when you finally feel the characters becoming alive and talking to each other and you become like a court stenographer is that moment that gives you so much joy. Unfortunately, that's like 1% of the process. <laughs> 99% <laughs> of the process is doing whatever you got to do to get yourself to that point. Um, but I love the joy of that. I'd also... I mean, this two-part answer. I think the second part that gives me the most joy about screenwriting is how you can just do it. Like directing, specifically, it costs so much money to make a movie. You know, I mean, yes, you can make a movie on your iPhone, but it, it takes people and effort and coordination and all these things. I love that every morning when I sit down, even if my pages are awful. and a lot of the times when they're in the, when they're in that first draft, especially, they always are. But to know that like by just sitting down and taking a pen and starting to write or typing it, I do write my pen first and then I type, um, knowing that I'm inventing something that could be a movie that could become a film. Um, I think that gives me just endless joy. So I would say those two things the getting that place where the characters become alive and the ability to always be able to do it, no matter what, you can always write and you can always
2: reinvent yourself. It's a great answer. Um- I'd love to know, Matthew, what pisses you off about writing. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> well, how long it
3: takes. Uh, it takes yeah. so much work to get a script right. And I know, Meg, I've heard you talk about this and Laurie and too and Jeff about, you know, just how you never realize how much work it's going to be when you start, you know, you write the first draft and you're like, yeah, it's like, OK, you can't,
0: it. you can't. Or why would yeah. you do it? You, cannot right. know. you
3: never know exactly how many drafts it's going to take, so. I think that, I think getting notes sucks. Not that like I, you need notes. Notes are important and thank God for my, because the version of my script before my producers versus what ended up after it was night and day. But um, but that feeling of getting notes always I have to get notes after <laughs> not do anything. Cause like, I just, yeah, notes are not fun, but you need them. It's it's totally a uh, cough medicine or or whatnot. It'll make you better. Medicine. <laughs> Um, so yeah, notes and uh, how long it takes would be my two.
0: So the last question is, if you could be remembered for one passage uh, you've written, or in your case as a director, that you've shot, a scene you've shot, what what do you want to be remembered for and why?
3: Oh, God, I didn't forgot about this one. <laughs> uh, well, I'll be cheap and I'll pick a scene from my movie, even though I i certainly uh, i'm proud of my film but i'd like to do better and do more um i i would pick the scene between in my film between tom Pelfrey and jackie weaver i'm really that scene came out i think really close to how i wanted it to um just the two of them took what i wrote and elevated it so much um and brought it to such a different level. I mean, it was, it was, it worked on the page, but I think the two of them and their energy together really like heightened what was in there and brought out the nuances and subtleties. And um, they're just such great actors. that so yeah, I would I would pick that scene because I think the characters and the work in that scene are, are my favorite amongst what I've done. Um, so I'm gonna pick one passage, I'll pick that seven and a half minute scene.
0: <laughs> it's a beautiful up. scene. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. It's a beautiful scene.
2: Thank you. you. know, it's a great scene. I want to, we talk a lot about on this show how particularly moms are written in a very narrow way, I think often, and I really appreciate it. I'm not going to give away what Jackie Weaver's character is doing in your film, but I think it's a really interesting and um, valuable portrayal of what motherhood can be. So yeah. I think um, I'm going to let that be a tease for our listeners to check out the movie because it comes out in theaters this Friday. It's, yes. I was looking, it's most major cities. I mean, any of our listeners, grab a ticket now because- Especially, this type of independently produced, non-studio theatrical release is a really important type of movie, and it gives a lot of first-time writers, like many of you who are listening, the chance to do it. So, I think, like, if you believe in the power of independent film to get a theatrical release, I'd really encourage you to buy a ticket to Matthew's movie, *American Murderer*. It's coming out this Friday, and it'll be on TVOD, Amazon, all the platforms in a couple of weeks. Right?
3: Uh, October twenty-eighth.
2: Yeah. So Great. October twenty-eighth.
3: Twenty-first in theaters nationwide, and then. 28th on streaming it'll still be in theaters too
2: but i don't know exciting it's a good movie theater oh movie too see it on a big screen if you can it's are you gonna a-
0: go are you gonna go to the theater okay, I am. Right? it's really fun to go i mean sometimes it's not but usually <laughs> it's really fun We're gonna to go, go yeah. and listen to the audience and yeah so yeah great.
3: it's only in one theater in la it's the lumiere music hall listeners um so my girlfriend and I are gonna go we have a lot of people coming uh tickets haven't even gone on sale yet for that theater uh but I think they're gonna go on sale soon so they should be on sale by the time this drops and um you know please come come meet me say hi um but yeah I plan to go to a couple and then we have the San Diego Film Festival on Saturday so my editor's from there so we're gonna go down there on Saturday yeah no it's fun it's fun to see with people
0: I hope you have a blast and thank you so much for being on the show
3: Oh my God, thank you. thank you guys so much um, for having me um, I really appreciate it and uh, Jeff, thanks so much for making this happen um, and Meg, this was such an honor and
2: guys, you're I really listen show. every week. I listen to a lot yeah. of them but this one I really listen to every single week. Um, I do want to and- emphasize though for our listeners, you're not on the show because I knew you because that nepotism thing is can be <laughs> I it can hey, be, you know what but um no, it's a great film and like it's what a valuable guest you are to have on the show. So thanks for being here and um, have a blast with the film.
3: Thank you. And thank you for what you guys do for screenwriters. Uh, It's a gift.
2: Thank you so much, Matthew, for coming onto our show and make sure you grab a ticket to see American Murderer, which is out in most major cities this Friday. I'm in Sarasota, Florida right now and I looked it up and it is playing here. So look it up. It's probably playing in your town. Jeff, you do this show from a
0: different city. I don't now I you're know. in Florida. Oh my I, God. I can't I keep up end. with you, Jeff. No, I, I love it. it I love it. <laughs> okay. Uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. If you haven't yet, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash the screenwriting life. Um, great group of people there. And also please drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps um, other writers find us. So if you are getting something out of this podcast and you haven't written a review yet, my question is why?
2: Please <laughs> do it. And remember you are not alone. And keep writing. Thanks for tuning in to the Screenwriting Life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. Join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash the Screenwriting Life or email us at thescreenwritinglife at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it. And not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship, and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.